Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. My guest today, Mo Said, founder and chief creative at Mojo Supermarket, one of the hottest small agencies in the industry today. In just the last two years, Mojo Supermarket has quickly gained notoriety, making headline-worthy campaigns for the likes of Adidas, Netflix, and Match.com. Mo has been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, Most Creative People in Business list, Adweek Creative 100, and Mojo Supermarket was named Ad Age A-list agency to watch in 2020 and standout agency in 2021. Before Mojo Supermarket, Mo worked as a creative at Droga 5 and BBDO New York. He is a thought leader and a guy I've really been looking forward to connecting with. This is Mo Said and I talking to ourselves. Well, listen, dude, you're the second Mo I've ever met. The first Mo I've ever met, my father, Mo Farhang. Damn, that's going to be really hard to live up to, but I will try my level best. Now, he's a Mo Sen. Is your Mo short for something else? It's Muhammad. Yeah. Muhammad. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I start every one of these episodes in the same spot, and that's a good segue because I'm guessing Muhammad is not from the Pacific Northwest. Mo said, Where are you from? And what do your parents do? I am from Lahore, Pakistan. And my parents, my dad is a banker, was a banker. And uh, my mom was my mom. <laughs> yeah, my mom is my mom too. Uh, you're, yeah. Speaking of your mom, your LinkedIn profile says that when you're not working, you're explaining what you do to your mom. Yeah. Even if after all the success you've experienced at Mojo Supermarket, if you called your mom today and told her that you decided to quit your job and take the LSAT and go to law school, how stoked would she be? Like if I just quit and went to law school? If you're like, mom, listen, uh, this advertising thing, turns out this was just a phase and I'm ready to be a public defender now. I think she'd be pretty happy. The thing is like now she's happy. Now she's fine because it's, it's like, she doesn't understand it, but at least like, I'm not, I'm not just like on the streets, which is kind of like when I was growing up, if you saw me or if you were my parent growing up, they were like, well, 99% chance he ends up as an addict and we have to like complete, I think they probably put some finances aside and we're like, we're going to have to take care of him for a long time. Yeah. Um, Because I think just, just that I'm not an addict in Pakistan is like a relief to them. They're like, well, whatever he wants to do with past that, I think we're fine. Yeah. For Um, Middle Eastern parents, you're touching on something where like you're, when you're, when you grow up there, like your, your professions are pre-assigned. Hmm. Yeah, my, my brother was supposed to be a banker, and he is, and my sister was supposed to be a lawyer, and she is, and I was supposed to be a doctor, and I'd like, I don't think I could ever do that. I don't think I could pull that off. It's uh, interesting, because it's obviously not pre-assigned in the U.S., but, you know, growing up with a child of Iranian immigrants, I think a lot of Middle Eastern parents still bring that sort of pre-assigned mentality, and yeah. it's not about the profession. It's just about what is sort of the path of least resistance to me not paying to fund your adulthood. And I think the, 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 you know, uh, preconceived notion on that is they're usually successful careers. Like immigrant parents want you to have successful careers. They're not successful careers. They're objective careers, right? Like Philippine uh, uh, mothers wanting their kids to go into nursing. That's not like a successful career. That's an objective career. The, the difference between like in finance, two plus two always equals four. When you're a doctor, like, you know, shit always adds up. When you're a lawyer, the law is the law. Like, no white man's going to tell you, 
hey, you did this wrong or like, I just don't like it. So you you pick objective careers that where no matter where you're from or whatever, you have least resistance. If you pick a subjective career, like, hey, I have this idea, you know, their fear is someone's going to be like, fuck you, I don't like your idea. And there's no, there's no answer to that, right? So I think what I think what people don't realize is like immigrant parents want you to get objective careers that are easy to not fuck up. Yeah. And the flip side of that is probably, I'll say for myself, it's what I enjoy most about this profession and discovering this profession. Um, and I'm guessing you share this, uh, you know, you share this belief that like, what I love is it's just no two days or I've been in this business for 15 years and no two days have ever been the same. And every day you feel like you're just sort of in this cage, you know, like, you know, every day is a battle and it's a completely different battle with a different set of weapons and, and a different adversary. Um, and like, that's what gets me up and gets me excited about it is like, it's, it's not, as you said, sort of applying this objective skill set. You, you develop the skills and the skills developed in yesterday's battle better equip you for tomorrow's battle but it's not one-to-one no it's it's very like you don't realize that you're developing skills at all yeah everything's everything's kind of new every day and i think that's the most fun part about it like you're just a kid at a fucking playground man like there's no you know there's no set ways to play the game and yes you take the slide and you're like oh well i know kind of how that slide works now but Every time you get on the playground, it's not that like you were going through the motions of playing. Playing is just playing. Right. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's a, that's, that's what makes it so fun. So, so if you were on a track to be, you know, doctor slash lawyer, um, did you have room in your house to dream? What did 12-year-old Mo want to be when he grew up if he had his druthers? Yeah. You, you know, I didn't know then. Um, and, you know, creativity we don't have a word for creativity back home. Like there's no word for creativity. It's just, you're either smart or you're stupid. And I was stupid. <laughs> and like, honestly, till I think six months ago is when I realized I wasn't dumb. And I think my dad realized when I wasn't dumb. So like when you're 12, I liked, you know, I liked making, I liked uh, making stupid, writing stupid stories. And, and I say stupid because I, it was, there's no room for that. Um, and I liked music and I liked playing music. So if I were to guess, I would have done a combination of all these things. But one of those things would bore me after a while. So like I could write a song and then it would bore me and then I would want to go do something else. So I think I found the perfect job where like you could do all these things. I met like my brother's friend worked in advertising and I went, went and saw him and, and he's like, yeah, man, you can. I was like, wait, you can just like play music and like make movies and you can do all these things and someone pays you for it. And it sounds like marketing, which sounds like a real job. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, sick. I'm going to tell my parents I'm doing marketing. And that's kind of like my way out. Um, but still, like, you know, advertising sounds like a really, it's, it's still not in the lexicon of the four professions that you know. So it was a lot of, it was hard. So much of how we measure advertising today is by its ability to land in culture or affect or reverberate in culture. And I think it's easy for those who were born here to take the power of American pop culture for granted. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a strong argument to be made that America's most valuable global export is its culture. 100%. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your relationship to American culture growing up in Pakistan. What did it mean to you? What, if anything, did it do for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I went to an American school, luckily, right? Like the, 
it, it was called the American school because they had American teachers, but then 9-11 happened and there was just no American teachers. So it was just a Pakistani school with American textbooks. Um, I think, you know, culture overall is, American culture is so big. It is the only, like, it's, you watch American movies, like the whole world watches American movies and they, the whole world listens to American music. Now I think there's more like there's European music and there's like K-pop and stuff. But when we were growing up, it was just like, you listen to 50 Cent or you didn't listen to anything. And it, you know, it's just like, so I grew up kind of consuming, you always grew up consuming this alt culture that isn't yours, but it feels like it's yours because it's the global culture. Um, and I think that's what, people here for, take for granted where, whereas in like, you know, I have the world's culture, which is the movies and the music and stuff. And then I have reference of what my culture is, which is slightly off and how mine's different. So I, I view both of them as an outsider, basically. Um, someone who's just grown up here and didn't ever see outside of their culture to them, culture was just culture. Right. So I think, um, I think we, we take for, you know, Obviously, it really helps me in my work to be able to look at something from the outside. Like I can go to a, like everything, man. Something every day reminds me that like I'm not from here. But slash, like also, that's pretty cool, right? Like you go to a bathroom, you're like, oh, toilet paper holders are cool. We don't have those, and it's just like gets your mind going. You're like, that's interesting. Toilet paper holders are right next to you in the wall. Why don't we mount other things to the wall? And this like gets your mind going into cool places. Well, and we love to believe that everything that we do comes from this really original place. But the truth is all of us are sort of an amalgam of references that touched us or moved us and shaped our creative taste. And uh, I think it's um, John Haggerty said, you're only as creative as your sources are obscure. So to come from where you come from and to sort of, you know, have kind of this, this window into American culture, British culture, Middle Eastern culture, just means like your aperture is a little more open to just reference points that probably sometimes are, you know, you're sort of harnessing subconsciously as you're creating things that do, you know, look and feel totally original. Yeah. I, I don't think I realized that and appreciated that till like last year. Cause you know, my whole, you're the accent you're hearing is fake. Like my whole fucking life has been to assimilate and anything that was different in advertising, you know, you grew up in this industry, anything that was different was wrong and everything that was like the same was right. So I tried to become the same for so long that I didn't realize that my perspective could be said out loud at all, but also that it was any valuable. Um, the value of it comes from like 10 years ago when I stopped, stopped pretending like I knew the reference that people were talking about. You know, the people were like, you know, when like in Star Wars, this thing happens and I could like finally say like, man, I've never seen that movie and, and not get, not worried, not be worried that I was going to get fired immediately. Yeah. Same you know, for me. Like in I the think, last five years, I gave myself the gift of just telling someone I haven't seen that movie. But there's an insecurity. I think you're right there. It's, it's part of this sort of need to assimilate. Again, I, I wasn't born in Iran, but I definitely share, I think, the desire to like, you know, make American people and white people feel comfortable immediately. Because when you say I'm from Pakistan or I'm from Iran, you can see in their eyes an immediate discomfort. And it's your job to alleviate that discomfort as quickly as possible. And so these cultural reference points are one really easy way to do it. You know, Hey, like I, I know your music. I know your music better than you know, your music. I know your movies better than you know, your movies. And so, but as a result, we lie a lot. It's like, Hey, you know, that scene from that thing. And it's like, yeah, I totally know that. 
Yeah, and advertising is so much of that, right? Like, and I think there's some cultures that are cool to be from, right? So I think in advertising, being a Brazilian art director is cool. Being a British copywriter is cool. Yeah. Being like, there's cool shit, but dude from Pakistan is not cool when whatsoever. I remember like we in BBDO we had Major League Baseball as a client. And I, by the way, I've only worked on pharmacy uh, and banks and like telecom at the end. And pharmacy, banks, and telecom, like only thing I've ever worked on before Mojo Supermarket. And I remember we had Major League Baseball, and I was I went up to the creative director and I was like, hey man, can I work on MLB? And he's like, what the fuck do you know about baseball? And I'm like, what the fuck do you know about baseball? You're German. And you, everyone who's working on this account was like British or Australian or like, I know just as much. But, you know, there's a mental jump where you're like, well, this guy doesn't understand. So that's why I was on, on, always on like banks. And I've, only, I've done a lot of bank advertising. They're like, you guys have banks in Pakistan, right? Okay, yeah. he, this should be fine. Everyone at the bank is Pakistani or Indian. So I <laughs> So, Mo, before we get into your career, let's just set the table here. I really admire what you guys have built in just three years at Mojo Supermarket. And, you know, in creating my own agency, one of the first things I did, maybe you did it too, is you just look at a bunch of agency websites. You start to see how different companies position themselves, how they talk about themselves, how they differentiate themselves. And in looking at dozens of agency websites, there was one, probably my favorite thing that I read that I came across was, was on your site, the three rules that your company abides by. What are the three rules? Well, we only uh, work with people that excite us and respect us. And we work with brands that excite us and respect us. And then we don't work with free. So only work with people you love, only work with brands that you love and don't work for free. Now, yeah. this sounds pretty simple. Yeah. But... I would just say in, in the context of, of how we talk about ourselves as marketing agencies and, and just in the world of unpaid pitches and agencies devaluing their work to undercut competitors and suck up to clients. When, when I read these three incredibly direct, simple statements, they felt so brash and sort of defiant by comparison. Do clients who you work with sort of call those three rules out as like something refreshing or something different? Does that come up very often? Yeah, I mean, it deters the right clients, right? It's like I did that ad age interview and when we made that money for the commercial, the Judy from ad age was like, are you worried you're biting the hand that feeds? And I was like, that's not the hand that feeds me at all. And I think you, you have to discern like, what do you want and what do you not want? And what do you not want is a very, very important part of your, your life and your career. And we didn't want, you know, my, our clients are amazing, man. Like we're, we're, I'm really good friends with them. I just texted one of them and argued like for, for 10 minutes straight and I can have, I can have that relationship with him. Um, we turned down our biggest client. It was like one of the biggest, I can't name who it is, top five advertisers in America. We picked them up about a year ago and we're like, oh shit, we're like big time now. And we picked them up and they gave us more and more and more business. And then eventually we're like, whoa, these aren't the right people. And we dropped them. And we just dropped a, one of the biggest tech companies and it's, it, you have to, I have a limited amount of time in the world or in my day. I want to spend it and give it to people that respect it. And also just like, I'm going to have fun with it. And we're going to make something really, really cool. And I think I had a, re a lot of really bad clients. Some clients that just wanted me off my business because of where I was from. Like I've had bad clients and uh, I just wanted to stop doing that. And I think what forces you to do that is the ambition to grow, right? You have to grow. You have to be bigger, man. 
I grew up in the same bedroom as my mom and my sister, turning the AC off every other hour. Uh, I have no need to to like grow up. The AC just runs all the time. It's amazing. Like you know, I don't. I have no like. Oh, now we gotta go to thirty million. Now we gotta go to fifty million. There's no like. I just want to work with people that I really really like, and we're gonna make work that's amazing. So the rules never stand in our way. They actually bring in the right clients that that look at that. You know, there's clients that look at those rules and say, "Yeah, is it me too?" Yeah, it's this very antiquated way of measuring success, and it's you know, like not to get um, you know too heady, but it's the it's the same corporate mentality that has risen the sea levels and heated the earth, which is the only thing that matters is shareholder value. And if we need to massacre the earth and massacre people that stand in our way to raise our stock price 1% from last quarter, then that's what we'll do because that's what economics 101 teaches us. And now you're starting to see companies think about some companies think about success uh, in a, in a slightly more, you know, dynamic and holistic way. And I think it's true of agencies too. It's like, I can remember old school CEOs telling me, you know, either you're, you're growing and you're winning or you're shrinking and you're losing. And it's like, no, that's not true. There are, I think there are thresholds where you can kind of find an equilibrium that works really well. That maybe, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know from talking to you for 10 minutes that you want to be the CCO of an agency with, 70 offices around the world and you're essentially sort of a head in a box. Like maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe you'll grow into that. Maybe you won't, but uh, it, there, there's other versions of success that I don't think we talk totally. about enough. And I think if it, if it works, right? Like if it works, then it works. Like, you know, beginning of the pandemic, I, the, the articles say we've been around for three years. It was just a year of me just not doing anything, just going to coffee shops and pretending like I had an agency. But we hired our f- first people at the end of January, 2020. And then the pandemic hit and we had no client. Like I, I was a senior copywriter before this. I had no clients, I had no people I know. And like, we had no clients, we had no revenue and I had three people on payroll. And I remember one of my copywriters came to me and she said, you know, if we just need to do some work that's not amazing to get through this time, we should do it. And I, I really respected that she came up to me and said that. And then I thought about that and I went back to her and I was like, Emily, we can't. Because if I open that door, that door is open and we know that we can do it. We can do okay work. Right. And I think that's the thing, right? Like you have to draw a line of, of your, where's your line? What are you not willing to cross? And the work line was the one we weren't willing to cross. We were like, we'd rather just shut this down than ever do, do bad work. So I think you draw a line of what you're not willing to sacrifice at all. Like I'm, I, I, we've drawn a line of like, we're never going to hire no matter how talented they are now, how many, no matter how quickly we need people, we'll never hire someone who's not the nicest person on earth and like doesn't want to grow our talent. This is like, we've, we're set up like a school and if that goes away, then we have to shut down. So there's like certain things, certain lines that we're just not willing to cross. Um, And that was just one of them. So if we can go take a step back, we'll come back to that, but you you move from Pakistan to the U S you attend Michigan state university. Uh, for most of us, myself included, we kind of drift through college and assume we'll just kind of figure shit out at a later date to be determined. Uh, I get a very clear sense this was not you and that you came to the U.S. with a sort of clarity and urgency around your career. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I knew I wanted to do advertising. Um, I wasn't a very good student back in Pakistan. Uh, I wouldn't have gotten into even Michigan State. I, was, I knew Photoshop, though, so I Photoshopped my transcript. And I 
I like had a fake transcript sent to Michigan State that I faked and made fake stamps and everything, like straight up catch me if you can shit. And uh, I got into Michigan State, which is not a school you should have to fake anything to get into. Um, I attended Michigan State because they had an advertising program and realized that no one, one person in all the advertising program had actually ever done advertising. So it wasn't really an advertising program. It was just like one of those communication programs. Dude, if you're going to commit fraud, why not just go Harvard? I, I finally just taught, uh, yo, I, I faked my transcript to get into Michigan State. And then I just taught a class at Harvard Business School a couple months ago. And that tells you how bullshit the idea of school is. Um, I, I wish, man, I wish I could fake it that hard. I didn't have SAT scores or anything to, like, to go with it. But yeah, I went to Michigan State and I like, got to the end of it. And I was like, okay, cool. What now? And uh, they're like, now you go to portfolio school. And I was like, oh, fuck, what's that like? They're like, well, it's going to be about like, what, whatever, like a hundred grand and it's going to be two years and it's, you got to live in a city. And you're like, I have 800 bucks. What do I do with that? And they're like, well, you guys, I guess you buy a ticket back home is what you do with that. And I realized, like, I was like, all right, what, what, what do portfolio schools do? And they showed me portfolios. They're like, you make portfolios. And I was like, all right, I can do that. So I went to Best Buy and bought a camera for 800 bucks. I spent basically all the money that I had on a camera. And then I made a portfolio. I was like, all right, fake ads is all you want. I'll go make fake ads. And I made fake, made fake ads. And then I ended up at, uh, with an internship at BBDO. So how might a colleague have described you during your first year as a copywriter at BBDO? I think young. I think, you know, I was, I didn't go to ad school. I was younger than everyone. And I looked younger than everyone. And I had no experience uh, I was just kind of winging this. Like I, no one had taught me at ad school anything. So I was just kind of like pretending to know that I wore like button up shirts to feel like seem older. I grew up weird. Banana Republic clearance rack. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. My girlfriend at the time <laughs> worked at Club Monaco. So she got like that group of companies. That's my stuff. Yeah, yeah. I like wore those shirts and I came in and I was just like super professional. Um, I think it, that was it. Like a kid trying, trying to not look like a kid is what people were describing as I think. I feel like that first, you know, quote unquote, big agency job can influence us in ways that we don't totally realize until years later, just like instilling fundamentals and developing approach to ideas and teaching us how to work within layers of management, which you had never done before. And I think also it's in showing us how we do or don't want a creative direct if we're ever fortunate enough to have that, you know, position someday. Um, and then also just revealing or sort of codifying our own professional ambitions. So I, I, I you know, you, you came in very young, you were there for three years. What were some of the lasting lessons you learned about the industry and about yourself during that period at BBDO? Yeah. I actually was hired by this like legendary guy. His name is Don, uh, Don Schneider. And he's like rumors room is that like Don Draper is based on this guy. He'd been at BBDO for 33 years and he had done like imagination at work or like you know all those stories that you hear like oh michael jackson's hair burnt caught on fire that was him like he that was his spot so he hired me and he was like man i'm gonna teach you everything i know and i was like fuck this is amazing this is gonna be so cool i interned for like nine ten months and then he hires me and i was like this is amazing my my life's about to change and like in six weeks he came back and he's like hey man uh i'm being forced to retire so good luck so I had him for about six weeks and then I had no mentor from there on out because I was just lost in the pit. But in that six months or six weeks, he taught me a lot where he said this one thing that is like 
by far, I brought him an idea and it was like some digital, like, you know, back then digital ideas were like, we're going to make a microsite and people are going to spend hours on it and stuff. He just looked at it and he's like, hey man, listen, I've got two kids and uh, I have an ex-wife, I have a girlfriend, I have this very, very intense job. I like playing music. I have all these things that I have to do. If you're not making shit for me, don't make shit for a housewife in Wisconsin. And that really stuck with me. And I like now call it like trusting your boredom, right? He was just like, don't make it for the most bored person. Make it for the most busy person. And if you can get me to do something, then it's a good idea. And I think that stuck with me where like, I'm a very, I'm easily bored by things. And uh, that stuck with me where if it's, if it's, if you don't want to do it right now, if you're not excited to take part in that idea or go to this event or whatever it is, or share it with your friends, that's probably not going to be a great idea. So that's the one piece of advice that's like always stuck with me. But otherwise, you know, I, I started, I had stints where I had really bad partners and I had stints where I didn't have a boss and no one cared. And I was kind of in the pool of BBDO. And what I learned was like, I have to do everything myself. And I think that became, you know, I was on, I was on financial accounts where I couldn't even do any, like I was writing tweets for two and a half years. And then I just like raised my hand. I was like, what's the account that nobody wants? And they're like, well, pharma. And I was like, all right, sick. I'll do pharma. Let's do it. What do you have? And they're like, we have CVS. I was like, all right, we'll do CVS. And then I made my big first breakout piece on CVS because that was the only thing that basically nobody at BBDO wanted to touch. And I was like, all right, just give me that. I'll, I'll figure something out on that. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of how I got out of the video. And uh, work, including CVS, caught the attention of Droga5 that came calling about three years into your time at BBDO. Is it true you initially turned down the job? I did. I, you know, I always had this fear, like I'm going to get found out and I'm not good enough to be here. Like a lot of therapy needed there, I guess. Um, but when they reached out, you know, Droga5 was really small and they were pretty notorious on if they didn't like you in the first three months, they would can you. And I had some friends that were way more talented than me that went there and, and, you know, lost their job pretty soon. And for me, it was like, man, if I lose my job, I'm not just going to my parents in Connecticut. I have to go back home and work at a bank. So I, the first time they reached out, I was like, man, I cannot be in the streets. And then one of my friends who had worked there and got like, go like grab lunch with me. He's like, don't be stupid. This is like, you have to do this. Did you tell um, the, did I'm, you tell I, the it, HR person? Like I'm, I want the job, but I'm afraid of being fired. I told the recruiter that. Yeah. I was just like, I, no, I actually didn't tell that. I was just like, sorry, no, I think we're okay. Recruiter called me and was like, well, I don't think you understood what I said. I said, Droga five wants to talk to you. Right. And I was like, yeah, but like, I'm just really scared. And she's like, what the fuck are you scared? This is Droga five we're talking about. And this is, you know, you never, this is that also at a time, like you didn't really know anyone who worked at Droga five. It was fairly small and they had kept the same team for a while. Yes. Um, yeah. At first I turned them down and that was a stupid move. And I went back. You know, I'm, I'm a little older than you before there was a Droga five, uh, you know, it was Crispin Porter that held the mantle of sexiest agency where all things are possible. Uh, and then you take the job with this sort of irrational optimism that all things are possible. And you find out not all things are possible. More things are possible. Uh, but the revenue driver for these big agencies, and this kind of comes back to what we were talking about, is still predominantly giant traditional ad campaigns. And so for me at CPB, I came to accept that I would just sort of make a lot of 
disposable advertising in exchange for like, you know, one to one to three opportunities a year to make something special that you couldn't make anything else. Did you feel like you had to sort of reconcile a similar trade-off during your time at Droga 5? Yeah, I was coming in, you know, when I interviewed there, they were like, why do you want to leave BBDO? It seems like you have, you're hitting a good stride. And I was like, I just don't want to do finance anymore. I've only done finance in my whole career. And they were like, good, we don't have any finance. And then day one, my day one, it was like, you're on the chase pitch. And, you know, we won that pitch and I was on chase for two years after that. So like reality set in pretty quick, but then like the whole time my brain's like, we're going to get out, we're going to go do something. We're going to do other things. But like the more I realized that that wasn't going to happen, it got, it kind of got scary and kind of got sad for a little bit because I got off of chase and then I got on credential and I got off credential and I got on spread. Like it just kept, the same thing kept happening to me. And then the one to three opportunities you're talking about didn't come my way because the one to three opportunities were just like, you know, another and good things, right? Like I was making these huge commercials with like Oscar winning directors, but the commercials, I, I didn't even want to watch them as soon as they were done. I was right. like immediately just, you know, I tell the story of, I did a Super Bowl commercial by the end of it. And um, while the Super Bowl commercial came on and I had a party and people were over to watch my Super Bowl commercial, as soon as the Super Bowl commercial came on, I went to the bathroom because I was just like, I don't want to see this shit anymore. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the big the big spot, I mean, it's fun to make those things and they, they're helpful. Yeah. They're helpful reps for when you get to make something that truly is special. Like, hey, I've sat in an edit. I've sat, I've been in high stakes moments for when it really, really counts. But yeah. um, what you want to be making is the next tap water project. And when those things come around, they're not giving that to you. They're giving they're it to not, the guy who's been there for 10, for eight years, you know? Not even the eight years thing, man. Like, I, I don't think, what I'm, I'm about to point out isn't like a drug of five problem by the way i love david droga i love that agency that agency helped me a lot but it's always the it's always the cool people that get cool projects right and i wasn't the cool person right like there's people that are the like sexy european guys that get like the under owners and the and the tap water projects and whenever that comes in and when it's just like hey here's an abusive client on like this telecom piece that's going to basically run through some people who do we give that to and be like well most not doing anything right you know it's like that you get that stuff and and you try to make something good and i was able, i was actually able to make something really good on sprint and that was kind of when i did and you know on the weekends i was doing stuff where like on the weekends i would do i would create a piece of technology that would go bananas on the internet or like i would make some stupid viral thing and i could do that pretty easily on the weekends and when I would come to work, it was the opposite where like, I was trying to push this stuff through. I was like, look, guys, I can make these things really quickly and really, really cheaply, but that's not what the work was. So that's what kind of like the, the dissonance started setting in where I was like, wait a minute. You know, first you say like, maybe I'm just not good enough to do those things. But then when you're doing them on the weekends and they're working, you're like, wait a minute, I know how to do this thing. Um, I just don't know how to do this thing here. And I think I just need a different structure. Well, you're, if what you're pitching is uh, fast and cheap and you're bringing that to a company that sells hours, they're not in the fast and cheap business actually is what you realize. Like the swirl and the inefficiency and the too many people in the room, not just on the agency side. And obviously we're not talking about drug five. We're talking about big agencies right now. Um, uh, like, that's not a flaw. That's a, that's a design. It's part of the design, right? Like, and, and, and actually, you know, I, 
I know you worked on Sprint, you worked on Chase. These are notoriously tough clients. And I don't think we talk about this enough. Like, you know, CPB and Droga 5 became these sexy shops because they make disruptive work that attracts decisive CMOs and strips layers of approval and people who say yes to scary things that have never been done before, which over time attracts the attention of giant corporate clients who want to work with the sexy agency, even though more often than not, they sort of lack the wherewithal or the appetite for risk to say yes to truly disruptive ideas. So they hire the sexy shop and then they go, okay, like mission accomplished. We hired the sexy shop. Now let us teach you uh, the, the process we use to churn out uncontroversial, high frequency, traditional advertising. And I mean, I experienced this at Crispin working on the craft account. Um, and and I, I'm guessing you have your own version of this on, on Sprint and Chase. And, um, and, and you could argue actually that it's, it's the conditions for the highest degree of creative difficulty in advertising, uh, which is sort of only exasperates the frustration of creatives like you working on the accounts for all the reasons that you went to a Droga 5 or a Christmas Porter in the first place, right? Yeah. I think, am, I, am I in your head right now? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, and I, you, and I, you know, I think the, the, that's happening to us now, right? Like the thing that I'm saying, the top, the, I don't want to name the company, but it's like one of the t- top three advertisers in America that hired us because we were Mojo Supermarket. They were excited and they right. brought us on. We did the work and they were like, whoa, 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 that's like way too fast. Can you do the, give us the show. And we're like, oh, we don't do the show here. We just do the work. And you know, that was a big, like they were like, oh, I don't think you are under, you're, you're underestimating the opportunity here. And we were like, no, no, I think you're underestimating the opportunity. Like, we can make some really cool work. But they were like, the opportunity is to get, you know, get our like stay with our account. Our, we're the biggest advertiser in the world. We can like make your life basically. And they can. That's the cool thing that they can do that. The chase. What Chase did for Droga 5, no other company could have done for Droga 5. Right. Like David Droga doesn't get the job that he has, that he just got if Chase doesn't walk into Droga 5. Um, so I think there, there's realistic roadmap things when you turn a client like like the one we just turned down. Because you you see the, your fucking life play out and you're like, well, it's going to be a lot less, a lot less zeros in my life if, uh, if this goes this way. And you also say like, you're going to be a lot less clients. Like, wait, so when you do chase work and it works, other companies come to you as well and say, well, you're the cool shop, but you also have the responsibility to be able to work with chase or sprint. So yeah, we're going to come to you as well. Um, I don't think an Accenture walks your way if you haven't done chase or sprint. Yeah. And what you're selling there, ideas are part of it, but ideas are not the product process is the product. And like, you know, I get the sense from you, you didn't start a company because you have this proprietary lengthy, you know, process. It's because you like to be hands-on and you're the chief creative and you want to be in the room presenting the idea, making the idea, you know, being all over it. And so when you have lengthy process and you need the show and they say, we want the show and we'll pay for it. I mean, what that really means is like, no, no, if we do it the way you do it, we have like 20 middle managers. And if we do what you're doing, that sort of renders all of them useless. And that doesn't work for us. Like the, there's a whole system here and everyone has to play their part and you're trying to circumvent the whole thing. Now, I think what's beautiful is like that describes a lot of very large corporate clients, but I've been very pleasantly surprised to learn brands that I wouldn't have anticipated big brands 
I think you're just, you're looking for sort of like-minded people with like-minded ambition. And there are those CMOs out there who are like, you know what else we could do? We could get you a great idea and produce it in like two and a half months and yeah. skip a lot of bullshit and pain. Um, yeah. And so like, they're out there, you know, it's exactly what you said. It's, it's a law of attraction thing. I think, we have, you know, we have truth and truth is a pretty big client and I would give them a lot of credit because they've been with pretty, you know, big agencies as well. And, yeah. and our way of working is definitely different. Our ideas are very different, but they've been, you know, I think it just depends on the people. They're amazing people. They're very ready to roll up their side of the sleeves as well. And, you know, the first time I presented, we don't do pitches that we don't make. We, you know, we the couple pitches that we have done, we've immediately gone into production right away. And, you know, this idea that I presented, and I was like, I started with, if you want to make an amazing omelet, we're going to have to break some eggs. And this is going to be not the way you like working. This is not the idea that's going to make you comfortable. It's not going to be easy to produce. I have no idea how we produce this, to be completely honest with you. But I'm telling you, if we do figure this out, this is going to be amazing. And it takes, it takes a bold and trusting and really, to be honest, really smart client on the other side to say, I'm going to work with you. Because I like, I like working with people. There's no show. There's no... We've developed this pitch. Would you like to look at it? It's the pitches that the, that we have taken part in, like two or I want to say we've taken part in two pitches. Um, we've worked. We've bothered the client the most. We've worked with them every day. We've had the most amount of check-ins and said, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And like brains, because they know the brand more than I do. I'm not. I'm not going to pretend to know what I. What, so I don't want to pitch and just like make something up to show you how I think. That's that's a waste of my time and yours. Yeah. No, I, I, we're six months in and I think that's that law of attraction thing that I've been very pleasantly surprised by in lieu of what I thought I would be doing, which was constantly pitching. And that has not been the case. Wow. And I think when your agency sort of reason for being is kind of clearly and compellingly defined as your guys is, there are just these wonderful, fascinating brands. And they often are led by people who've worked at agencies. I think we have this cliche of what a client is. And it's like, sometimes the client is just as creative as you are and had a storied career at an, on the agency side. And like, they're your greatest ally in getting to yes faster and getting to you uh -huh. know the production of something interesting faster. And they want what you want. Um, and I can, I mean, I can feel that in your work that this is this, a lot of this work is not the product of lengthy pitches and unpaid pitches. It feels like sort of like-minded people found each other. It's a hundred percent that man, like, and you're right that like, you know, your and my, what, what you and I have on our side is like, it is a different generation because mm. there's smarter people that are going into marketing. I will say, you know, um, I will say it used to be, and I'm not saying this is how it is at all now, it used to be you went to college and said, what's the fucking easiest degree I can do? And they're like, marketing. And you're like, yeah, let's do that. And you got out of your degree and they're like, hey, here you, you have this job. And they're like, what's the job? And you're like, oh, you're the highest creative director. The agency's going to come up with stuff and you're going to be the person seeing it on the other side. And you're like, do I need any experience on that? And you're like, no, 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 you just do it. And on the other side, creatives, if they're good, they've they've spent their time at ad school. They've spent their time doing the work. And like, by the time they get to meet you, they have a lot of experience, hopefully, and, and good experience. So for a long time, marketing in organizations, marketing was like a very, like, you know, oh, like that person doesn't do well in anything else. Let's put them in marketing. Now it's the opposite where like, there's a really, really smart ass people in marketing that either came from agencies or didn't come from agencies that are coming straight from school or whatnot. 
And they're smart people, man. They're smart, creative people that are going into marketing because they're seeing right now is the time of brands, like the whole brands built on marketing that don't even have a product yet. And I think this is the first time in history that we have really, really smart, engaging, collaborative people in marketing. Both all of our clients are like that. Um, our true client, the CEO, started one of the first big female-founded agencies, Kaplan Baylor. Right. So, you know, there's there's some big, really, really smart people on uh, on the clients out now. You're you started a company sort of predominantly during COVID. So you haven't gone to a lot of dinner parties, but had you gone to a lot of dinner parties, how might you describe Mojo Supermarket to somebody at a dinner party? Before, now I have like a more of a pitch down. Um, yeah. before, before, I don't even think I actually have a pitch down now. I think, you know, we, I hate ads. I hate making them. I hate looking at them. I hate looking at them just as much as anyone else. Like I think, you know, I was walking around Brooklyn and my friend was like, oh, what do you think about that? And I was like, what? And he pointed out an ad and I was like, it's a fucking ad. You know, it's like, I don't look at ads and say, oh, it's a headline or who is that by or anything. I, I ignore ads just as much as anyone else does. And I think that's kind of what makes, you know, I, I don't look at what one of can. Ad Age asked our PR person, like, what does Mo think is going to win at Cannes this year? And she was like, to be honest, I don't think Mo knows what's in Cannes this year. <laughs> because I don't, you know, I'm not a... And that's it. I'm not saying anyone who does that is, is wrong. Like I, I have a very, very, very small attention span that way. So the stuff that we make is kind of like a meaningful thing in culture, right? So like we try to get your brand to mean something in culture, not just the advertising, but like mean something in culture, match the thing that we did. You know, it's easy to make a campaign that says like, you're ready for love download this shit now you know that whatever the line is and i'm sure that a lot of agencies came up with that and ours was just like man what is why does matching what do, what do adults feel about dating and i was in that category and i was like you know what dating sucks man dating's awful and i don't want to like i look at all these ads from dating apps and i don't want to be jumping fences and, and doing cool things like I'm, I'm a goddamn adult like i want like real some i want to i want to have dinner with someone and someone to tell me their like favorite childhood movie and their childhood trauma in the same sentence. Like I want some, some real stuff. So I think what I would have described it as like, we'll find you your mojo, which is just like your meaningful place in culture. Yeah. How many other, how many, uh, how many employees at Mojo supermarket now? It is around uh, like between 30 and 40 somewhere. Wow, dude. Congratulations. Thank you. We've been very, very, very slow and considerate about that. Well, and, you know, uh, you were able to sort of gain notoriety in that first year, first year and a half around a couple pieces of award-winning work. And that invites sort of the next challenge of converting that initial success into new hires and sustained growth and these things that until you've done them, you've never done them before. And you go with, you figure out when to use your gut and when, when you assess that your gut is betraying you and you should do the opposite of your gut. Um, do you guys look at growth as a kind of calculated step-by-step -step process with specific benchmarks or has it been more of a kind of informal process of just following momentum and allowing the, the structure to take shape more organically? Yeah. Well, you know, for us, it's been, like I said, it's, I kind of set off to start a school 
and it's still a school. And it's about how many people can we get in that belong in the school? And then how much work can we get in to support that? Um, work is always knocking on the door. It's like constant, right? And you have to, we've been very considerate on what we take on. Actually, we've, we've turned down most things in the past couple of months just because we didn't have the, you know, we were trying to build a team in the right way. And, and we have so many prerequisites on who can join. And it's like very, 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 very tough. So growth to us is like, oh, we found this amazing person and they have to come in. We have to bring them in. We'll figure out what they do when they're here. Um, and this is like crazy magnetic place of really smart people that we've gathered. And then we bring in the business to, to, to support that. And also stuff like, what do we want to talk about next? Right? Like dating was something that was Weird in, in my life at that time, I was like, man, I wouldn't, I want to talk about this. And Hydro, the, the, the thing that we just want is like that founder sent me a Hydro and I tried it. I'm like, this thing's amazing. We've got to talk about this thing. So, you know, most of it is like, what are we interested in right now? And what do we have something to say about in culture? And I think uh, most of the things that you see from us is like, instead of promoting a good product, it's like promoting a, a cultural thing or cultural meaning like something meaningful in culture so it's mostly about like what do we want to talk about what do we want to say next and what are the people that we want to bring on next so the growth is always measured and i don't honestly don't know how much revenue we make to be completely honest with you um i have smarter people that tell me that and i think for us is always like or or don't or don't tell you that or don't tell me that yeah Yeah. uh just so it doesn't get to my head um no, it's always, you know, I'm, I'm a very untraditional person to be running a company. And I think for me, it's always just like, oh, shit, we can't turn this down. We got to do this. Thing. Yeah. Um, and then the person, people as well, like, oh, this person's interested now. You know, you have to you have to think like a year and a half ago, zero people wanted to work in motor supermarket. Are you kidding me? Like, I would be begging people. I was giving like half the company away for one of my friends to come join on the full salary. He was like, no, that sounds awful. <laughs> and now I just, as a joke, send in, send in pictures of expensive things. Um, you know, I think nobody wanted to join it. Now, if, if in the next month, you'll see we've actually gotten people who built really, really amazing creative departments and really, really amazing departments. I, I wish I could. When does this air? Like in the next two days. Next week. Okay. Yeah. So you'll see, you'll see in the next month or so, like some people that I'm so jealous of and admiring, like, people I would go to for advice all the time. And now we're bringing all those people on. Um, so to me, growth is just about how many smart people can we get in a room to just jam? And well, I work. love, I love what you said too, about like, Hey, let's just find the right person. And then we'll figure out like what their title is or what they do. One of the greatest annoyances I've, I've had at a large agency is when I'm asked to write a job description. Yeah. Cause my, it's like, well, the best people I've ever worked with, I wouldn't have been able to describe them until I met them. My greatest fear is I'm going to write a job description and we're going to end up hiring basically whatever the limits of my imagination are oh. versus like, no, find remarkable people who are yeah. remarkable in ways you've never encountered and then retrofit a title based on their abilities. And like, it's it's not, it's one of the, again, I think as you were talking about, we're a different generation. It's just, that's not the way business has been done, but it works way better. It is, it, and, it's, and I think it's even in small things, like, like, yeah, we have people here, like, we have a guy named Dylan. Honestly, you have no idea what he does. Like, the most title I can give him is his name is Dylan. That's what he does. 
Um, you know, even with stuff where like I have a designer who's like, oh, I want to be an art director. I want to be like this art director. I'm like, don't be like this art director. This art director is like a dinosaur. I'm a dinosaur. Don't learn all the advertising things. So even, even within the creative department, we have people that are, we don't really know what to call them, but they're good. And that's all we, we can say about that. Well, to that point, sometimes in the normal flow of business, I find myself slipping into a shitty impersonation of Alex Bogusky, And then I sort of quickly remember I'm not him and my agency isn't that. Do you ever find yourself slipping into a shitty or even a semi-convincing David Droger impression? I, uh, you know, the, I didn't know this when people say like, did you have a vision for the agency and stuff? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And then Camilo, one of the architects pulled up an email that I wrote to him while I was at Droga 5. And I said, hey, can you make me a logo? I'm starting an agency. And this is the description of the agency. And in it, I said like, you know, I'm, it's not Droga 5. Look at the Droga 5 logo. It's very, very sleek. It's very considered. It's very like, it's kind of like David Droga. He doesn't speak much. But when he talks, it's like beautiful, it's eloquent, it's everything. And I was like, this agency is like me. I ramble for hours. None of it really makes sense. But most of it's from the heart. And that's what I want the logo to be. So it's very hard. And I think initially I was like, well, an agency owner looks like this. But David and I, we're friends. It's very hard to be David for me because I'm such an opposite person. Um, so I wish I did that more because I think people would like it more and it would make more sense, but hard, man. I, I enjoy your, on, on the topic of David Droga, I enjoy your social media musings very much. Uh, one of your biggest grievances I've noticed is the cliche of creatives as sort of stoned apes who must constantly be protected from the realities of how adult business is conducted. Your team not sharing revenue with you, notwithstanding that comment, um, in the article about Droga taking the Accenture job, I guess that was last week, I was shocked to read some dipshit quoted prominently in the article saying like, you know, ideas are one thing, but can he manage a P&L? Yeah. And I had flipped to LinkedIn and you had already just sort of masterfully ripped apart that exact quote before I'd even sort of wrapped my brain around it. In, in a business where creativity is literally the, the fucking product, why are the actual product people still viewed as like petulant nitwits because it's not like you know i obviously know how much fucking revenue we make but it's it, because i say shit like that that people are like well he's, he must be he's just a dumb stoner <laughs> um david droga is a very capable businessman if you ever talk to him he's, his business acumen is maybe stronger than his creative acumen i will say yeah um and to be honest so there's a few there's a few things at play here one Creatives have always been baby. Like they've been treated like children. Like they don't even write their own setup slides. They don't know what calm strategy is. Like at Mojo Supermarket, we've got a calm strategist who's amazing, she's super smart, but she came in to make a slide, like make the calm journey for the creatives. I was like, don't do that. Don't let them do that. And it's because creatives have been so babied in everything that the suits think like they have to be babied. And they don't, they're smart people. Some of them aren't, I will say. Sure. And, but some, some of them are, man. Like if you just, I think the biggest problem in most agencies is that the, you know, what's the biggest thing that clients tell you that's wrong with agencies? They don't get to hang, they don't get to talk to the creative person enough. And the creative person, if they're a smart creative person, they're like, I don't understand the client's business enough. And that's because there's people in the middle. There's lower level client side people. And then there's like account people on both sides that are keeping these two worlds apart. And that's why we end up with shitty work that makes no sense. Um, 
I think our industry doesn't doesn't appreciate creatives because A, of the structure, and B, if these people started appreciating creatives, then if I can do what you can do, plus I can come up with ideas, then your job's useless. So I think that's how they, we, they treat us like dumb stoners, dude. And it's, it's basically, can you look at a PNL? Yeah, I can look at a PNL. Like the man started, created, ran, and sold an agency worth half a billion dollars. Like some nitwit turned to that guy and said, well, can you run a company? Fuck yeah, you can run a company. Are you kidding me? And I think that it's such, I, it wasn't even one quote. It was so many quotes. Yeah. They were like, man, this is going to be a big job, even for someone like David Droga. I'm like, what are you talking about? His agency is the best agency in that network. If he can run his agency, he can run. And as if, the guy, as if the guy has just been reviewing decks for the past decade and not doing right. anything else. Writing copy. Yeah. The, the guy running, like Brian, the guy who was running Accenture Interactive before, also a really super smart guy, nothing against him. But if you look at his, his resume, he was running RAP as the vice president. Like, you know, like if you look at the resume, David Drogo has a sick resume compared to Brian Whipple before pre-Accenture Interactive. Yeah. So it's such a wild thing to me that creatives are treated like just, just apes. That can, and it's funny because if you're coming up with a product then you probably have, and, and I think that's why creatives aren't good at their job, to be honest, like people, cause they're kept from the business and they're kept from the problems and they're kept from like before, you know, creatives are creatives don't go to the pitches unless you're a CCO, you don't go to the pitch. I don't know why my juniors go have been to pitches and my juniors have seen scopes and red scopes and they know what scopes are and i didn't know what the fuck a scope was when i started this agency. i didn't know what a capabilities deck was when i started this agency um and i just like made one up with pictures of lion king that's a story for another time and i you know creatives had to be like oh this is how this business works that you're in and this is how your work goes out it's not just like you come up with a stupid joke and then someone goes and airs it yeah. And when they know they're, they're more invested, it's a good segue uh, to a question I wanted to ask you about managing creativity versus doing creativity, you know, which are not the same thing as a guy with a strong sense of creative taste and conviction and as a relatively young guy by chief creative standards. Uh, how hard has it been for you to develop the skill of trusting others and leaving room for others? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not a very big personality when it comes to creative i actually have the opposite problem where i'll go to everyone in the room and say which one do you like and then you know my junior art director a year ago had to pull me aside and say you know sometimes i just want you to pick because i came to work for you and i was like okay God, yeah i'll do that I, I think managing creatives has been really really fun for me like i said if this is supposed to be a school and, and when you run it like a school it takes a lot longer because you're letting people fail and like you have the idea you have a really good idea on the first day but you're letting them fail for 13 days and then saying i have to come in 14th day and last day if this doesn't work um i that's my favorite piece now like i uh you know i take my i took my portfolio off the internet and my portfolio is these people now and i invest a lot of time in them i you know we work on we work on little things that we like, what does, what gets in this copywriter's way? What is this copywriter? Where does she get stuck and what happens and what, what holds her back or, or like, Oh, this person. And I've, I've created syllabuses for everyone. 
and they're not assigned projects willy-nilly. Like, oh, Sarah and Damien are really good at activations. Let's give them an activation. Like, oh, we have an activation project. It's usually like, yeah, they're really good at activations, but the thing they need to learn is this piece. So give them this piece. And usually, you know, recruiting works the opposite, like resourcing works the opposite, where they're like, well, if we put someone on that that doesn't know anything about how to do that, it's going to take a lot longer. And you're like, no shit, it's going to take a lot longer. Yeah. But they're going to learn. So I run it totally like a school. Everyone has a syllabus of the next 15 things they have to learn. And then I assign projects and their counterparts and my involvement accordingly so they can learn that piece. So we're, we're developing pretty like monster creatives. Um, and whenever we bring a freelancer from outside, I'll say it like never works because we've trained our people so to the T. There's a running joke that like Mo will bring in like some EC story ECD and they'll work for two weeks. And then our mid-level team will come in for four hours and then we do all the work. Yeah. Um, so we, we run it very, very much like the school and it, it's, it works. It's interesting. Again, as we think about the old way of doing things, the old way is, you know, the safest way to conduct a company is to only let people do what you've seen them do. Yeah. But when you do that, you're not opening the possibility that when someone is doing something they've never done before, yes, there may be inefficiencies and missteps, yeah. but you're also missing out on the hunger they'll bring and the lack of presumption that they'll bring to maybe do it in an original way. Sometimes the ignorance of, of not knowing how to do it is the greatest advantage you bring because you don't know where the, where the lines or what the rules are. Look at me, man. I don't know shit about agencies. Like I have never right. had the C-level title. Um, I've never even held a director of a title. Like I think, you know, I, I tell my, this art director that I have a lot and I tell her, don't let your inexperience be an, an excuse for your inability. Because if you can look at something and like, well, I don't know how to do that, then you're at the, you're like, you're at the wrong place. I don't know how to do any of these things. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's a CCO friend of mine that right as I basically started the agency, like actually got, actually got into my agency, him and I used to complain about the same things. Like, man, it's like so hard to get a creative, so hard to get the right creatives for me. And I called him a year later. I was like, yo man, what's going on? And he's like, it's so hard to get the right creatives in space. I was like, oh really? Oh yeah, I solved that problem. He's like, how did you solve that problem? He's like, well, I just took the creatives that I did have and I turned them into the creatives that I wanted. Right. He didn't like put any of that time in. He was just waiting for the right creative to show up at his door and solve the thing. Right. And I think that's the difference between like agencies and, and, and hopefully what we're building. Creative people are really malleable and that's right. It's like you hire the freelancer or the hired gun and they either step up to the challenge or they let you down and it's very transactional. But I mean, I, for me in hiring, I just, I find all these incredible people who have so much to give, but if you've worked at a really large agency, that's their product is tonnage. Yeah. Then in, in fact, like it's not too useful for those people to be too creatively ambitious because that will get in the way of their ability to just churn, you know, like social posts, which yeah. can only perform, which can only do so much and which they can only be so proud of. And so actually some of that ambition and creative freedom is beaten out of them. And so they have to go home and, and find that, that outlet in the evenings and on the weekends as you had to do. And it's like, you know, 
Or there are jobs where you can just bring that to work and do it as your profession. And it blows the minds of people where, yeah. And it's, you know, listen, I mean, you worked at Droga, you worked at BBDO. It doesn't sound like you had the optimal versions of those experiences, but still you were around people who were like, you know, like it is, you could at least see you were at least one arm's length away from like, you can bring your best creative self to work and like, and utilize these skills as, you know, in exchange for, you know, in exchange for uh, direct deposit every two weeks. Dude, it's, it's the wildest job, man. Like (laughs) I just go to a a high rise in Manhattan every day and walk in and I hang out with the smartest people I've ever known. And we just sit in here and we're always like, you know what would be cool to do? Blank. And then yeah. when that enough people like that thing and if people think it's cool to do, then we go do it with like the best people in the world. And then I go home and someone's deposited money for rent and blue. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's insane. Um, but you, what you're saying is like a really, really important thing where like when we pick up creatives from other agencies, they have a lot of bad habits, not just creatives, account people, uh, product producers, everything, strategists. And we work in the first 90 days to beat those bad habits out of you. We have like, a, again, the syllabus, right? You sit down and you figure out what, what's this person's, what are these habits that they picked up? And they could be a multitude of like a copywriter who doesn't think she can work on Adidas because I'm like, why can't you work on Adidas? Like, oh, well, because I don't know anything about sports. I'm like, Emily, you don't know shit about credit cards either. You sell those just fine. And like, She's made to believe that she's not going to succeed on sports because that's not the assignment that she gets. Or a copywriter who, you know, this is a, this is a big pattern that you see. Um, if something happens, like, well, client did this. So, you know, yes. And you're like, oh, so can you, can you figure your way out? And you're like, no, nah, man, like legal killed it. And you're like, that's, that's, a, that's a pattern that he's picked up from somewhere. Now I have to fix that. Or there might be a pattern where someone's not great at receiving feedback because they think feedback is bad on them. It's like all these patterns that you pick up, right? So I have like this running syllabus that I'm creating. I'm creating this fucking program, which you go in and identify your patterns. And then we work to fix your patterns to make you a greater creative because all these patterns are just fears and they like not to get too heady. But basically, ultimate creativity is your highest purest spiritual self right yeah. that's where the human experience is coming from and when you have us to assimilate or when you have fears or whatever less creative i always say before motor supermarket i think i was running at 10 percent creativity because of my all my assimilation right. that i have to do it. oh that's that idea no one's gonna understand so when you beat up these patterns and say oh you always go into a loop where you think of the idea for too long and then don't execute, or you don't spend enough time on the third half of your manifesto because you freak out. These are really, really small things and really, really hard to identify by the way, but they're, we've developed this system where like we bring creatives in and you're like, I know what's wrong. I know like what's holding you back and we can make them creatives that they've just, you know, everyone here says, everyone here has done their best work here. Everyone who comes in a motor supermarket burns their portfolio in a ceremony and then we fucking start new. And I've done my best work here. And it's it's all because I've identified my patterns and I've been able to identify other people's patterns and what's holding them back. Um, and then we work on those things really, really regimentedly. Are you trying to get a sense of patterns in interviews? Do you have a favorite interview question that you like to ask people? Dude, I'm terrible at interviews. I will, I'm awful at interviews. 
And uh, you know what doesn't make interviews great? This thing, podcast. Yeah. I'll like interview someone and then someone will say something like, man, this guy and I really vibe. It's like reading my mind. And then like, wow, this guy's super, wait a minute. He's just fucking seeing podcasts that I've been on. Do you know what I love is it'll be like, like, hey, like uh, you'll ask like, hey, like what are, you know, because you get a sense of, of what people are like based on their creative taste and a great way to find creative taste is just like, what do you wish you made? What are some things that you've seen that touched you or moved you? So I'm like, Hey, what are some, what are a couple of your favorite pieces of the past couple of years? They're like, well, you know, Mo, I, you know, I really loved uh, that Adidas piece. And then I really loved that. Uh, it's like uh, that match.com piece. It's like, bro, I'm happy that you looked at our website, but that wasn't the question. Yeah. 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 I get really uncomfortable with interviews, man. Like, I, I, you know, I've never had to do them before this. So I, I, I don't know how to do them yet, to be completely honest. You know, we have, we have this person, first of all, we have this person coming in as, as the dean of Mojo Supermarket and building out the creative department. She's done it for very, very storied creative departments before, so I'm very excited. Um, but they, I, I let my people interview. So if it's a creative, uh, I hired, I always hired the first four people. And then everyone else has hired everyone else. Right. And if it's a creative director or a creative, there's these two, three creatives who've been in the supermarket for a long time and they interview everyone and they just tell them, Hey, we want this person. And we hire them. Uh, I rarely ever said like, Oh, this is the person. I and we make mistakes, man. My managing directors made mistakes. I've made mistakes. Like we made make hiring mistakes, but I would rather, there's some times where in an interview, I know an account person's not right, but I won't tell her. I'll let her make the mistake because I want her to make the mistake instead of being like, well, fucking no to me to hire this person. And it's very, very autonomous, like strategy runs strategy. I don't, I don't really get in the way of things. I can give you my opinion. Um, but even in creative, someone else hires creatives. I can give you my opinion if, if you want it. But to be honest, a lot of times people don't. <laughs> people are very happy hiring from the supermarket because they're way more passionate about it than I am. They're just very cutthroat about who can come in and who can't. And I let them do that. And I think we, we, it's easy to take it. It sounds like you don't. I think it's always been easy for me to take it personally when it doesn't work out with somebody. And then you go like Droga five, Wyden Kennedy, CPB, like there's just no agency that bats a thousand, you know? And um, so you just have to kind of accept that it's part of doing business and you do your best and yeah. learn from, learn from mistakes. Cause it is people's lives ultimately. And like, you want it to work out and you always enter it with the best of intentions. Yeah. One person turned us down. I did take it personally for a yeah. long time. Um, it's the hypocrisy of being a, a CEO or a founder. It's like when you have to let somebody go, you know, it's just business and like, you know, but when someone turns you down or fires you, it's like you son of a bitch. Yeah. And it's very I, personal. I'm really bad at the first one too, man. Like January 20th, 2020 is when we hired our first three people, right? And then we lost all our business. And for a while, all my friends were like, well, you got to furlough and you got to, you got to, you got to get rid of it because you have zero revenue. And we had zero revenue for seven months. And I was, not a lot of people know this at the agency, but I like switched bank accounts to my personal bank account. I was just paying people out of my pocket and they didn't wow. know that. And I never gave anyone a pay cut because I was like, everyone joined this fucking thing. Like, they're super excited. And I was making up assignments to give them. Like, Let's work on this t-shirt or whatever. It's like just to keep them engaged. Um, so I'm not good at the first part either. But there is times where, you know, I'm learning. There's times where people just, you're not doing them a favor 
by keeping them because this isn't the right place. And I've now started to learn that more and more. But you know, people that you like, it's it's if I ever have to let go of someone I really think is good, but we just don't have the money, it'll be it'll be really hard. I think I'll like sell shit at home just to keep them. That's an incredible story and an incredible place uh, to let's end this here and, and finish up. I, I end every episode with the same three questions. I provide them in advance. Most said first question, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that you just fucking hate the most? I should have prepped for these questions. I know you sent them to me in advance. Um, it's, it's usually either KPIs or what's the, um, it's not best in class. You know, the, the phrase I'm, uh, it's best, best it's in classes. Best. best in classes is a pretty annoying one too. It's, it's like a version of best in class. I forget what the, the thing is called. Um, it'll come to me. It's like, basically like, this is how things are supposed to be done. Like, you know, <laughs> the calm strategies will tell you like, oh, this is what perform like this thing. I love when strategists present your work back to you, like nine months later, we're like, well, twice the price score worked because of loss aversion and people love loss aversion online. You're like, no, it worked because it was a dumb idea that I had. <laughs> people would like it. So I, I love the um, the best in class type things where like, this is the best in class and this is how advertising works. All right, question number two, what is the shittiest or most horrific response to an idea that you presented to a client uh, in a client meeting? Oh yeah, one um, one, pitch it was a paid thing but uh this is only like i was presenting and they were just like mid thing to just went okay uh mo can you just go to the the next one please and i was like okay well, we, we only brought two campaigns so like third page into a 20 page campaign i was like all right yeah we'll go to the next one and uh i first first slide of the second one they're like ah just we did something like it's can you, <laughs> is there another one? And I was like, that's the deck. No, and we've, been, like, we've been working on this for a month, guys. Yeah, and we were, they were like, okay, uh, well, I guess we'll call you. And we've never heard from them. We got the check and we've never heard from any of these people again. And it was bad, but it was really, really good because you kind of find out, you're like, oh, I don't, those, those aren't the people we should be working with. Rule number one, they don't pass. And the third idea is called the one that got away. It's the one idea that it died in real life. Maybe a creative director killed it. Maybe a client killed it, but you still think about it. It kind of lives on in your heart. Now, full disclosure, I emailed you this question. You wrote back and said, you know, I suffer from short-term memory loss. I can't think of one. Now, there has to be one for sprint or chase. Or my other theory is you know exactly what that idea is, but you're a young man, you have a lot of career ahead of you and you just don't wanna, you don't wanna give away an idea for free. You know, I, I wish it was the second lead because like there's straight up times where I've looked at like my old art director's book, like someone who works with me and I look at a book and say like, man, this, this is a really good manifesto. Who wrote this? And he's like, you wrote it. You wrote that thing. And I'll, I'll forget, like I'll write something this week and I'll forget it next week. I'm not one of those creators who has like a deck full of ideas that, I revisit ever or or anything. Uh, sometimes I cancel ideas because I'm like, oh, I've seen something like that. And the creator will be like, well, you came up with it last week. And uh, it's not something that exists in the world. It's just you came up with it. So I forget ideas immediately. Um, I I only remember dumb ideas that I don't think were good, but if they're just like stupid, 
we have Hydro, the workout machine, and someone presented to me, one of my copywriters presented to me two weeks ago. She's like, let's just, it looks like a banana and it's a full body workout. She's like, full body banana. That's a really good campaign. We should do full body banana. And it's like the stupidest sounding thing. But honestly, if it was our machine, it would probably work because it's like such a, like it's a, it's a dumb phrasing of something that would actually work. So I just remember dumb ideas, like a, like a creative presented me a candle that uh, that smells like LeBron James sweat all the time. It's just like a weird thing to ever say out loud. Um, I remember the stupid things like that. I never remember ideas that died. Um, I don't well, know. You just get, you just gave us two and I love that too. I mean, I think it's, yeah, sometimes great ideas start with, I'm always listening for the real laugh, not the awkward laugh, not the like courtesy laugh, but when you actually make me chuckle, maybe I'm chuckling for all the reasons that it's wrong, but man, there, there's value in that chuckle. If you listen closely and yeah. like, don't, don't leave that thought just yet. Maybe with the slightest tweak, all of a sudden it's not so, it's not so silly anymore. You know, I think some of the greatest advertising is the wrong chuckle, yeah. right? Like it's the, Oh, I just laugh. Why? I have no idea. Like a lot of Jerry Grass work, you just laugh and you're like, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. yeah it's really funny. All right, mom, I'm going to leave it there, man. Listen, Thank you for, uh, for you guys are, are, are a huge inspiration to us and other small agencies. Uh, so thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for uh, having a killer website that was a huge source of, of uh, inspiration for us as we were starting the company. Something as small as, as a website, but it's what's on that website made me sort of think about things a little bit differently. And so kind of ever since then, uh, I've really been a fan of what you guys are doing and, and will continue to be a fan of what you're doing and do it on a personal level. Just two Middle Eastern creative directors cutting it up on a podcast is a pretty cool thing. This was a blast, man. Let's do it again. This is so fun. I just, yeah, this is awesome. Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you, dude. Catch you soon. Hi, Thanks. Okay. See ya. All right. Thank you to Mo Said. Great to connect with that dude. Great to pick his brain. And thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello at JSM Music. Folks, if you like the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace.